I'm Steve. And I'm Sarah. And today is not only New Year's Eve, but it is also, what, the eighth day of Christmas. So (laughs) happy eighth day of Christmas to everybody. Um, (laughs) Still Merry Christmas. So um, while the department stores have probably put all their Christmas stuff already on clearance sale, the followers of Jesus, especially those who are church nerd minded, um would like to take a pause and say, it is still Christmas. In fact, there's a reason there's a song about the 12 days of Christmas. There are 12 days of Christmas. And in the way the church keeps time, instead of rushing ahead to, we did Christmas Day once, now we're moving off to Valentine's decorations, we sort of let the story hang in the air for a while and take it in. So as much as we had a lead up to the coming of Christ in Advent, there is sort of 12 days of sort of afterglow of like, let it sink in what Christmas is about. And so... um, We wanted to share with you uh, some of our favorite Christmas carols. Last time we talked about that world-famous one and war-stopping him, Silent Night. Um, And we wanted to share uh, about a couple other carols. Sometimes there's interesting stories. Sometimes there's just things that are worth lifting up uh, about uh, carols that you might be singing where you are or just uh, you hear in the background. So we wanted to share with you some of those carols that are favorites of ours in this season. So the hymn I would like to bring to your attention is Hark the Herald Angels Say. Yay! This is a good Methodist hymn. Uh, John Wesley wrote it. No, Charles. Uh, Charles? Oh. Strong doesn't write him. I Charles does. I the sheet in front of me. Charles Wesley. <laughs> Charles Wesley wrote it. Um, and did you know that he wrote over 6,000 yeah. hymns in his life? Yeah. So, um, as the story goes, um, apparently as Wesley would be riding along on his horse, going from place to place, preaching and the like, he would just be thinking of lyrics and mm-hmm. hymn tunes and so on and so forth and would frequently have to make stops at houses and inns and the like and run in and go do you have a pen and ink because mm-hmm. he would need to jot down his ideas and i guess he didn't always come prepared with his own pen and ink and paper yeah john wrote tournaments while horseback riding charles wrote hymns Yep. Yeah. You know, like, it, it's cool to think, like, how their world would have been different if they would have had smartphones, because, like, they can pull up the memo feature and just record. <laughs> like, there have been times where I've been stuck in traffic and an idea will come into my head uh-huh. and I'll bring up the little notes feature and, like, record something. There's one time I was stuck in traffic driving home from Washington, D.C., and I wrote a whole song driving back because I was stuck in traffic <laughs> that long in little five-second segments when we were at stops. So, that, like, I could picture Charles Wesley doing that. It just, it'd be hard to remember what you had thought in your head for until the next town. <laughs> Yeah. But as you can imagine, if you've written like over 6,000 hymns, that that will fill up quite a lot of hymnals of just your <laughs> just, just Charles Wesley hymns. And his hymns are long, too. Oh, I yeah. Mean. Uh, like, I think Hark the Herald Angels Sing, at least the version I have is only three verses, so it's not that long. Um, no, but some but, of them go on for 20. But Charles Wesley also hated people tinkering and mm-hmm. messing with his hymns. So much so that at the beginning of one of his hymnals, one of his hymnals, y'all, again, multiple hymnals, he he wrote this. It was a big paragraph, but he he wrote, I beg leave, leave to mention a thought which has been long upon my mind and which I should long ago have inserted in the public papers had I not been unwilling to stir up a nest of hornets. Many gentlemen have done my brother and me 
so without naming us, the honor of reprint many of our hymns. Now they are perfectly welcome to do so, provided they print them just as they are. But I desire they would not attempt to mend them, for they are really not able. None of them is able to mend either the sense or the verse. Therefore, I must beg of them these two favors, either to let them stand just as they are, to take things for better or worse, or to add the true meaning in the true reading in the margin or at the bottom of the page, that we may no longer be account, accountable either for the nonsense or for the doggerel of other men. End quote. Can I just say, in, our, in the United Methodist Hymnal today, we have directions for singing. And number two... Is that? It's almost that. It says, sing them exactly as they are printed here, without altering or amending them at all. And if you can't, if you have learned to sing them otherwise, unlearn as soon as you can. <clears throat> wow. Wow. So, Charles Ward's kind of modernized for everyday English. Well, <laughs> so out of curiosity, do either of you know whether Charles Wesley just wrote text or did he ever write melodies also? Mostly text. Okay, because uh, I like this hymn for a different reason. Uh, I like this hymn because the melody is by Felix Mendelssohn, who's one of my favorite composers, mm-hmm. but Mel- Mendelssohn didn't live until after Charles Wesley died. So I'm curious about like what this would have, like how Wesley would have heard it sung or what kind of melodies they would have used at he, first. He tended to print them to a lot of uh, common everyday songs known as bar songs yeah, back then, which sure. a lot of people think were yeah, songs we su- sung in a bar, which really they were just, you know, sure, familiar like, tunes. Sure. Mm-hmm. We, we call them advertising jingles now. Yes. <laughs> Anyways, back to the hymn. Yeah. So, I, this is important to note because Hark the Herald Angels Sing <laughs> is mended. (laughs) What we sing today is not what poor Charles Wesley wrote. And he didn't write it in another language. He was an English speaker so this is not like, well we had to change it because it's from German into English. This is, we didn't, nobody liked what he wrote and everybody has accepted a changed version. So when Charles was 32 he wrote Hark the Herald Angels Sing. But it wasn't Hark the Herald Angels Sing. This is what it was. Hark how all the welkin rings. Glory to the King of Kings, and then so on and so forth, which is a lot more similar to what we know. But that first, that first line, hark how all the welkin rings. Welkin being an old English term for the vault of heaven. So, in our ears, it kind of sounds like a, like a Middle Earth Tolkien sort of a Lord of the Rings uh-huh, kind of, yeah. the, oh, the welkin rings. <laughs> um, but instead, this is, it's a way of saying, like, all of heaven is ringing, or like that, there's another hymn, oh, how all the vault of heaven resounds, or something. So yeah, that's the idea. It is. And um, Charles Wesley's friend, George Whitefield? Whitefield. 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 Um, he, he went on to publish this carol in a collection of hymns in 1753, and he's the one that changed the words to Hark the Herald Do you know it was, was uh, Whitfield, was it, he in America? Yes. Okay, so I wonder if part of the difference is, I wonder if Welkin wasn't a bit of English that didn't really survive in American English. Like, I'm not sure if that could be a piece of it, that if you were trying to spread a hymn and you're preaching around in the circuits in America, if you're like, no, nah, I'm not going to teach people the word Welkin, we're going to change it because they don't know that word here. That could be, but I mean, Whitfield spent a lot of his time in England, though, too. Sure. Like he, I mean, he did spend some time in the Americas, if I recall correctly, but um, he's the one that got John onto the um, field preaching mm-hmm, mm-hmm, aspect. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I love that story about this hymn. Yeah. <laughs> um, and maybe, maybe there's a, a bigger lesson for us too in that, like 
I, I get it, and we live in an era where people are really guarded about their intellectual property, and you write copyright on it, and this is my words and all that, and you don't want to mess with somebody else's stuff. But on the other hand, if you mean it, like the Wesley seemed to have meant it, you want to reprint, you can you know, reprint and reuse this. Like, there's a sense in which you're giving up your words to be used by the wider body of people. And in a sense, yeah, there's going to be times where there's wording changes or whatever, because this is now a, a collectively used text. And you can either, I guess, treat a hymn text or a prayer like it is a museum piece and kept on the wall and we just look at it. But if you're going to use it, it's going to get worn. It's going to get used. It's going to get, you know, um, wear marks on it, so to speak. Um, And I I guess I think there's something kind of cool about thinking about how wording of things, we have to give some possibility. This this may get changed over the years because we keep using it, like in, in ways like... Uh, even texts that are like learned by memory in a lot of our traditions, like the Lord's Prayer or the Creed or things like that, we can get all bent out of shape when somebody says, let's try not saying thy, but your. And maybe that's because, you know, most people don't say thy or thine anymore, uh, except there's one place. Um, and it, there was a time in my life where I got really hung up on, no, you're, it's thine, just like Jesus would have said. Well, no, because there's no, like, highfalutin thy in ancient Aramaic or in Old Testament Greek or New Testament Greek. But, like, so the same, the same principle is here, too, that if you are willing to let your words be useful to the, the the way other people believe. There's the risk. There's a certain vulnerability of other people might... I mean, like, even some people might get some meaning out of what you write that you didn't intend or make some connection. We talked last week about how uh, the Silent Night song, that, that uh, the, the writer of that text wasn't thinking, by about 100 years from now, there's going to be a war. We're going to need a song to sing across the trenches. Uh, and yet that... Uh, that him and that text ends up being used in a completely different kind of a way. There's something that Wesley, I guess, has to let go of that maybe would be wise of us all. Uh, a recent preaching advice that I've heard from um, the Reverend Lisa Cressman is that when you're preaching, when you're speaking the words, not like your sermon prep where you're like actually mm-hmm. writing it, but when you're speaking and preaching, your words are a gift. That sermon is a gift. As soon as they've left your mouth, they're no longer yours. Yeah. That when they fall upon your listeners' ears, they're no longer your words, they're their words, and that they get to do with those words what they will. Um, but I think that's similar to the music that people mm-hmm. write, that as soon as it's written and as soon as it's out there, it's no longer necessarily yours anymore. It's, mm-hmm. it's yeah. theirs. I was at a uh, workshop years ago with Lauren Mead, who was the founder of the... Uh, now defunct Alban Institute, sort of a church life mm-hmm. organization. And I remember he said somewhere in the midst of all that he was presenting, and he had like lots of content and diagrams and ideas and charts that he just gave out. And he just sort of led, had this blanket statement. He said, if any of you want to use any of this, that's fine. You don't have to give me credit for it. He just, he just said, the Holy Spirit doesn't copyright stuff. And I think it was this sort of like, if you find it useful, use it. If you understand what you're doing is meant as a gift. And, it, and it, if it turns out what I have to say is not useful, don't feel like you have to use it. Um, but yeah, there, there's something kind of humbling about seeing, and maybe also at the same time really, really empowering about thinking that when when we speak, yeah, that idea of what we have to say is a gift that it may not even be that it was primarily my gift, but the, the Holy Spirit's a, a part mm-hmm. of our, our work preaching or writing or speaking. And sometimes even in spite of ourselves that we'll be like, you know, we, the, the times that the, the thing you wrote or said that you thought totally bombed, somebody else will really, really like. Mm-hmm. And the other way around, sometimes you're like, oh, I hit a home run. And I'll be like, yeah, that was not very good. Um... <laughs> But there's something that is, I, I guess, a reminder, to, to me at least, that this whole project we're in as uh, leaders who speak stuff in, in the church's mm-hmm. life is about letting go of the words and knowing that they're going to be in somebody else's hands then. 
So are there other things that you want to highlight about this particular hymn, about the Welkin ringing? <laughs> no, not really. I mean, it's a, it's a really good Christmas hymn. It, mm-hmm. it does what good Christmas hymns are supposed to do, which is proclaim the birth of the Messiah. And it does that. So. <laughs> Just thank George for changing the words. So Check that more box. Simple. So thank you, Charles Wesley, and, and for George Whit- Whitfield. <laughs> and Felix Mendelssohn, a Lutheran, who yeah. wrote the melody. Or at least the melody that we all know. Right. <laughs> So, okay, if it's my turn, um, I would like to break outside the box a little bit because one of my favorite Christmas songs is one that I almost never hear sung on Christmas Eve uh, or rarely it ever gets any press. And in part, that's because it is a relatively recent uh, creation. I've heard it used as a choir anthem because it's easier maybe to introduce new music on Christmas Eve as well. As long as you're not taking a spot for me to sing one of my favorites, the choir can sing whatever they want. Um... But one of my favorite, favorite hymn texts, and the melody is absolutely gorgeous, but I won't try and duplicate it here because if I try and sing it, it will not sound beautiful to you all. Um, but uh, Yaroslav Vajda's uh, Before the Marvel of This Night. Uh, he's a 20th century uh, hymn writer, uh, and uh, Carl Schalk was a, the, the composer of the melody. He wrote a number of really, really gorgeous hymn tunes, and I'm a fan of his work just as a, as a writer. Um, but what I really, really love, that just the sheer poetry, and if you, if you don't mind me reading the, the words to this, uh, this, is, this is how the, the hymn text goes. Before the marvel of this night, adoring, fold your wings and bow, then tear the sky apart with light, and with your news the world endow. Proclaim the birth of Christ and peace, that fear and death and sorrow cease. Sing peace, sing peace, sing gift of peace, sing peace, sing gift of peace. Awake the sleeping world with song. This is the day the Lord has made. Assemble here, celestial throng. In royal splendor come arrayed. Give earth a glimpse of heavenly bliss. A teasing taste of what they miss. Sing bliss, sing bliss, sing endless bliss. Sing bliss, sing endless bliss. And my favorite verse is the third one. The love that we have always known, our constant joy and endless light, now to the loveless world be shown. Now break upon its deathly night. Into one song compress the love that rules our universe above. Sing love, sing love, sing God is love. Sing love, sing God is love. Mm. One of the things I love about this hymn, I, I never really thought about it until just now, that it's almost like the text is is stage directions to the angels. Like, okay, here's what you're supposed to do. Here, mm-hmm. Jesus has been born. Your job is to tell the... So it's almost like like the, giving the direction of the angels what they're supposed to do. Uh, now go tell everybody about what's happening. And that it's, it's like, tell the rest of the world what's going on in heaven right now that, like, this is what you're in for, world, that God mm-hmm. is up to bringing all of creation into this light. Um, and what I really, really love is that that image in the last verse. The love that we've always known, like in, in, in God's reign in heaven, like there's nothing but this sort of perfect love. Uh, our constant joy and endless light now to the loveless world be shown. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's an echo to me of one of my favorite um, Lent and, and Holy Week hymns um, that uh, is, is about uh, how God's, my song is love unknown, uh, love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. But that idea that like God's entry into the world in Christ isn't, well, you've been so nice and well-behaved and you love me so much, now I'm going to save you. But like to this world that would make no room for him, uh, Jesus is born. Um, and there's something really powerful that the, the, the gift of Christ's birth is, is grace through and through. That, uh, that it's, a, it's a loveless world that God enters into and that God does that knowingly rather than like, oh, I thought they were going to love me and it turned out they were jerks. And God, God knows in advance. Mm-hmm. This is, this is we're, we're a world full of rotten jerks <laughs> um, and is born into it anyway. So this is a 
fairly recent. Yeah. And according to this hymnal that's in front of me, the text was written in 1981. Yeah. And it was arranged in the following year with this particular tune. Um, and, I, and I wish that the Christmas season was longer. Right. So that we could sing new hymns. Because I think with the Christmas season in particular... Everybody wants to sing their old favorites, you know, mm-hmm. A Little Town of Bethlehem, Silent Night, um, you know, those those hymns that we've sung for forever, like Silent Night being a fairly, like, 200 years old. Yeah, that's only 200 years old, right? <laughs> it's fairly new. And, you know, last week when we were talking about Silent Night, I was just amazed that this congregation would be willing to yeah. sing a brand new, like, three-hour-old hymn. Right. Because um, I think... My congregations have been singing the same set of hymns in the same order for who knows how yeah. long. And if you dare to suggest, hey, not even like a new and different hymn, but just like let's change up the, <laughs> the order. Bit, like people go like, what? You don't want to sing Silent Night as the last hymn? Right. Like it's shocking and like they don't even want to hear it because that's going to turn people away because... This is their hymns, that, and so we don't get to sing yeah. these new beautiful hymns that are so rich and beautiful because they're not the ones that everybody yeah. sings every year. <laughs> to me, one of, this is one of the things that I think is so funny, and forgive me that this is like my like religious professional hobby horse, but it is funny to me how in so many ways in church life, we can get hung up on recent history as the way it's always been done. And we forget, like, like now there's this, we've always been singing Silent Night. Well, for nine-tenths of Christianity, no, we weren't singing Silent Night. It's been a big favorite in the last 200 years, but that memory of we've always sung it that way, no. In fact, when it was first written, it was three hours old when it was first sung, and everybody was cool with, we just wrote this, let's all sing it right now for the first time. And I guess to me, like, Again, I'm, I'm not. I don't want to suggest like every Christmas, let's write brand new stuff to confuse people. But you want to get closer to the feel of the actual birth of Christ, which felt very haphazard. Like she's going to have a baby. Let's find anywhere we can go that will be a quiet space. Okay, food trough it is. Like there's something, and the angels. Let's run. You know, go. <laughs> the shepherds run into town. Everybody's just sort of making this up as they go, and yet we've sort of ossified it into this. And now everything will happen exactly as scripted. There was no surprise when the story itself is you know bursting with surprise uh, I, I think that's kind of at least ironic and it, it is funny to me too that we kind of have this don't touch my Christmas like as though like it is this is how it's always been when again like to be really really honest for a lot of Christian history Christmas as a festival wasn't nearly as big a deal as it has become in the last couple hundred mm-hmm. years we've kind of romanticized yeah. it since Charles Dickens maybe and again I love all that Charles Dickens did uh, and all the I mean there's something lovely about all those quaint Victorian Christmas scenes and all that um, but it wasn't the the big to-do that we've made it into, and there wasn't a celebration. I mean, like, for, for centuries, there wasn't any real festival around Christ's birth. Yeah. And then, really, the, the early church is, like, you know, it's centered on the resurrection of Jesus without any real, like, festival celebration. And if there was, it was often the when the Magi arrived at what we now call Epiphany. That was the big day to celebrate uh, all the stuff that happens at Jesus' birth, all the way down to the Magi and the Star and all that kind of thing. But, yeah, we kind of have made it into, no, it's always been like this, and this is how Christmas has always been observed and celebrated mm-hmm. with these particular, you know, five hymns and no others. Um, and, like, no, that's not, that's, that's not really how, we sometimes are not very good students of our own history. I don't know this hymn. I've never heard it before, and so I don't know the tune of it. Oh, the, the melody is gorgeous. I highly recommend everybody who has access to the Internet somewhere in your near future, go listen, go find a, a recording of Before the Marvel of This Night. 
But it almost seems like to be the flip side of Silent Night in some ways. Mm-hmm. You know, like Silent Night is all about the earthly side mm-hmm. of what mm-hmm. happens. Mm-hmm. And, and just the stillness and the quietness of, and just the sweetness of it all. Where this is like bursting and, you know, some of the words in yeah. it. Of you know breaking into the darkness and tear the and, sky and, apart with light. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I love that line. Like you know, I'll, I I like that. I would mm-hmm. love to contrast the two of them. Mm-hmm. But I'm mm-hmm. not Lutheran. So I, and <laughs> you're allowed. You're allowed to sing a hymn that was written by a Lutheran. I mean, we do. <laughs> but, I mean, <laughs> it's just harder to find it copyrighted. I, I, I don't have a copy of this particular hymnal that it's in. I don't have a copy of this song. Um, and of course, uh, you might get five hymns on Christmas Eve. I get about three. So, um, you know, you only get three. Like yeah. I swear, our Christmas hymns. I mean, four. Christmas Eve service has like eight. Yeah, we pack as many hymns as we can, and yeah, like you preach for like two minutes so that you have more time for singing. Yeah, well, <laughs> the one who's who's the founder of his brother was a was a hymn writer. Yeah, we get three, maybe four if you add Joy to the World at the end after Silent Night. Um, so, um, so anyway, I appreciate you all being willing to bear with me sharing this n- new hymn that is lesser sung. Um, and this is not me lobbying that every church has to sing this particular hymn on your Christmas Eve, but it is one that is absolutely gorgeous. And maybe part of the difficulty is the text itself is written sort of like it's on Christmas Eve before the marvel of this night, that it doesn't work as well singing two weeks later on the second Sunday of Christmas or something like that. And that's one of the difficulties. There's so many really, really lovely Christmas hymns, but that the poetry puts you there on the night Mm -hmm. and it feels a little bit like, uh, it doesn't quite work as well if it's broad daylight on the second Sunday after Christmas and we're singing about how the stars are sparkling too. That, that kind of, I guess, says something to me about like how we write the poetry of hymns and things like Mm -hmm. that. How much is wedded to a particular context in which you can sing it and does that limit the way it's, it's usable in other ways, you know? It's even better when you're Methodist and you sing Christmas hymns through Advent and it's just like, no, we've not, not he's not here yet. Right, right. Right, right. Um, so, yeah, because there are so many of them that truly are for that particular right. Christmas Eve night, Christmas morning, somewhere in that yeah. time frame. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for letting me share mine. <laughs> so we go from something really, really new and something kind of new to something ancient. Yay! Um, <laughs> um, oh, the Father's Love Be Gone is a tune. Um, Steve, help me with the author of this one. The text is Marcus Aurelius Clemens Prudentius, who lived between 348 and 413, roughly. There you go. So we're talking 4th century. We're talking 300 years after Christ. We're talking Nicaea. Like the, the Council of Nicaea yeah. is fresh in people's memory. Yes. yes. St. Um, Nicholas has recently punched out <laughs> Arius the heretic at the Council of Nicaea. And I first heard this tune, in fact, I sang it, I think, as an anthem, because um, it's not in my hymnal. Um, my my church uses a, a Baptist hymnal as well as the United Methodist one, and it's in there. And it's just the the beauty of this hymn. It's, it's kind of um, it's not lullaby. It's got a chant quite, feel but it, to yeah, it. Yeah, it's got that chanty feel to it, which I'm I'm a chant geek, so um, I like that about it. But some of the wording, I'm just gonna um, I want to read through the verses of this because it might not be as familiar as like Hark the Herald Angels Sing. All the Father's love begotten, ere the world began to be. He is Alpha and Omega, He the source, the ending, He. All the things that are, that have been, and that the future years shall see, evermore and evermore. O ye heights of heaven, adore Him, angels, hosts, His praises sing. 
Powers, dominions bow before him and extol our God and King. Let no tongue on earth be silent, every voice in concert ring, evermore and evermore. Christ to thee with God the Father and the Holy Ghost to thee. Him enchant and high thanksgiving and unwearied praises be. Honor, glory, and dominion and eternal victory evermore and evermore. Well, I've, in the few times I've heard this song, it's, it's been like Advent, Christmassy. I mean, I think this is something that could honestly, it's kind of got that Christmas feel. Yep. Um, just in, in the melody of it, it, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's hard to explain Christmas feel music, but we yeah. all get what that means. Um, this is something I think that should really be sung all year round. Well, and like, again, my guess is as early as this is written, nobody thought of a, like a thing as a Christmas hymn in uh, the year Christmas 400. Christmas didn't really exist right, yeah, as, there's, a, as a celebration at this point. I'm thinking they may have just begun to say, hey, we should have a council decide on when we're all going to celebrate this. And I'm not sure they had arrived at December at that point yet either. Um, but that, uh, yeah, it, it's it's... I think it's more about like good incarnational theology, yes. which is what's in the news in Christian world in the early fourth century. You know, yes. it's like how, how do we talk about who this Jesus is? Oh, I've got a hymn for you. <laughs> uh, it's interesting. We've we've noticed in other conversations about hymns how there's differences across translations, mm-hmm. and uh, the one that appears in the uh, Lutheran hymnal, the first verse is almost word for word exactly mm-hmm. what you've got, um, but then. Our translators have done all sorts of different directions. So our second verse is, Oh, that birth forever blessed, when the virgin full of grace, by the Holy Ghost conceiving, bore the Savior of our race, and the babe, the world's redeemer, first revealed his sacred face evermore and evermore. Um, there's a, just, uh, clearly, they've just rearranged pieces of the original Latin and tried to... Well, you have four verses. I only have three We got mine. five, actually. There's you a got fifth five. What? Yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. And it's, strangely enough, not in our newest hymnal. Isn't that interesting? Um, and again, it's, one of the things that's difficult about it is it is written, the melody that people sing it to these days, if you sing it, is it is a 13th century plain song chant tune. And that means it is hard to harmonize. And as much as in my mind, having heard it enough, I think of it as Christmas, it doesn't have the feel of like a singable refrain like Hark the Herald Angels Sing or a repeated last line like Joy to the World or something like that. It's, and it's, it's not... It, it's hummable, but it's not har- harmonizable in ways it's that a lot of It's kind of along like the O Come, O Come. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's kind of like along that kind of strain of Christmas Eve tunes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it, I, I'm thinking the the melody of O Come, O Come Emmanuel is probably around that same era. Mm-hmm. That's that kind of plain song um, kind of melody. Um, and it, again, I guess in fairness, too, if, if you are living in an era where most people are not literate and where you don't have the guarantee of an organ or a guitar player or something like that around, you're going to write melodies that are learnable because we're, we're just the notes just go up and down sort of in short intervals. So I, the, the, the musical history of how you get melodies like this probably fits what's technologically available. But now in an era when we're used to different kinds of melodies or harmony or a particular sound that sounds Christmassy or we expect it to be like sleigh bells in the background <laughs> when you <laughs> sing something. Um, like, yeah, this 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 tune, uh, it, it, it feels kind of ancient, which I think is cool, yeah. but it, again, it, it has a different vibe for people who have a set. These are the five songs we sing on Christmas Eve and they were all written in the last 200 years, that kind of thing. Um, the thing I really, really like about singing ancient hymns like this, and I'm so glad you mentioned this particular hymn because this would have been on my short list too, um, is um, I think it's so cool to think, even if we're changing the order of the words or even if we're singing with a different melody than the person originally wrote it for, um, 
that we're we're part of something that stretches way way back mm-hmm. centuries even even like to you know 1800 years ago 1300 mm-hmm. you know like to 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 a long 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 far time back and that it's a reminder to me that church isn't just what we've done in the last 5 years or 10 years or 20 mm-hmm. years and not just how we do things right here um, and to think about how many different people in different contexts and cultures have sung something like these words. I, I, that, that just, it's a reminder to me of the, the, the vastness of what it is to belong to the, the body of Christ as it stretches across time and space. And because of like when this song was written and being right around you know, the Council of Nicaea being something very much at the top of people's... You see that theology played out here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Where... Not saying that later hymns don't have that same kind of good incarnational theology, and a lot of them do, mm-hmm. but it's it's interesting and it's fun to, to kind of notice when hymns were written and maybe what might have inspired that hymn to be written at that time yeah. because of what was going on in Christianity, especially things that date back this far. Sure. Because something pre-Nicaea, you know... Well, where you could have Arian your, yeah. Yeah. Um, kind of hymns. And my guess is, too, like that if you... If you were an ancient poet or, or songwriter, and I don't know whether Marcus Aurelius Clemens Prudentius intended this to be sung or chanted or just thought I'm writing a cool poem or what, but my guess is there was an early time where it's, I'm going to write all the things I need to say, and later if it fits a melody, cool, because like lots of chanting tones have this sort of fudgeability. If you can cram a lot of syllables into one note, uh, traditions like ours that chant parts of the liturgy is kind of like, wow, you got a lot of content in that one little note. Um, and like the theology was, what, like the, the melody was always in service of the theology or the text and there is the danger I think if you write things uh, now in the era of I got four verses at most I got maybe three verses will keep people happy and I got to cram whatever I got to say in there and it's got to fit a rhyme scheme man sometimes you have to sacrifice Mm -hmm. your theology to what rhymes or um and that, I mean, like, that bothers me. I don't mean to get on another high horse. But, like, seriously, the reason that we so often assume Jesus, uh, when he was born, was meek and mild was that mild rhymes with child. And now you got a million Christmas hymns that make that rhyme, um, even though, like, I'm not sure what you think you're saying about Jesus, that he was less ornery or less crying like the other babies. That seems like that's not actually what the incarnation is about. Um and I guess I'm I'm nervous about that, that kind of sentimentalizing of what happens, especially for the sake of a rhyme, when in most of Christian history, that wasn't the way they did things. And maybe that's because, I guess, if you're writing in Latin, like, everything rhymes because the language declines and it's harder to make things not rhyme, I guess. Um, but it, it, it's a quirk of how our poetry works that we sometimes sacrifice meaning for... Uh, a line break or something mm-hmm. like that that clearly an ancient text like this doesn't have that need. So, um, we've spent some time talking about ancient hymns and really, really modern ones and ones that are in that like golden age of Christmas carols in the last <laughs> 200 years, regardless of if they were reworded or not and removed the word welcome. Um, and we hope that wherever you are, you've gotten a chance to sing some of your favorites and some other uh, maybe new ones will be uh, in the background somewhere in these days as we continue to celebrate Christmas here these days. Thanks for listening. Merry Christmas. Bye.